Welcome to episode 164 of the Reformed Brotherhood. I'm Jesse. And I'm Tony. And this is the podcast that's like oil running down on the beard of Aaron. They just keep hey, getting brother. better and better. Hey, brother. So this idea to change the opening is just straight brilliant, and it's getting better every week. I'm excited about this. Uh, you guys out there in Reform Brotherhood, dumb or whatever we want to call it, we you know we don't have a name for our fan base. I mean, I guess we just call them the Brotherhood. Uh, send us your taglines. We want them. We'll, we'll use them and we want them. So send them in, hit them on Twitter or send them in the email. But we would love some uh, some grassroots taglines. And at the risk of sounding like every prosperity gospel teacher, the only thing better than taglines is money. And I want to say thank you <laughs> <laughs> to some brothers and sisters who continue to give to us, and especially our brother Mike, who actually just increased his monthly pledge to the podcast. I'm so grateful for that. Like we said before, your first responsibility should always be, of course, to your local church. And if you're willing to give above and beyond that, and you decide by seeking the mind of God that the Reformed Brotherhood podcast is part of your giving, we are so grateful and are willing to accept those funds because we can put them to use here to cover all of our incidental expenses. So thank you, Mike. I really appreciate that. Yeah. You know, we're recording. This is the Sunday after Thanksgiving. And keeping with our Puritan roots, we uh, we don't do anything abnormal on the podcast. We just... Same thing every week. No holidays, no special episodes. Can't stop, uh, won't stop. But I am very grateful for our audience and for especially for those who support the show because, uh, you know, we have a lot of things we want to do with this show, a lot of different uh, ideas and a lot of uh, concepts we want to build. And, you know, sometimes that takes a little bit of money. So we appreciate the support. We appreciate that we don't have to fund this ourselves. Uh, it really is something that I think is community driven now. Like it, we, we try, we set out on this to build a podcast and it very quickly we realized we wanted to build more than just a podcast, but we really wanted to build a community and it really has become that. So thank you so much for all your generosity. And if you're interested in finding out how you might be able to give logistically, if you just go to our webpage, reformbrotherhood.com, in the upper right-hand corner, there's a link to Patreon, which is what we use. So if you want to make a one-time gift or reoccurring gift, we're just thankful for anything that you're willing to send our way. So thank you. Yep, absolutely. Jesse, although that was like the supreme affirmation, why don't we do some affirmations and denials? Yes, let's do it. So you start us off this week. So uh, it's about time for us to talk about something called Spirit and Truth. So oh, yeah. this has been a long time coming. So Les Lamphere, who uh, I think it is not an exaggeration to say is the father Abraham of the Reform Podcasting Nation, uh, really kind of all of the shows that take this sort of two laypersons talking about theology format uh, really started with the Reform Podcast. And Les uh, just finished his movie, uh, those who were uh, uh, Kickstarter supporters uh, just got their early access. Uh, Ashley and I watched it yesterday, and it was phenomenal. It was really, really good. So it, it comes out officially on the 14th of December. Uh, you can get it pretty much anywhere you can buy digital movies. Um, and, you know, Les worked really hard on this. And he has, in a very real sense, um, given up other sorts of job opportunities to continue to make these really educational, winsome, uh, and I think important movies. You know, Les... 
less if you follow his personal story kind of started out as like your typical young reform restless guy. And he very quickly uh, grew into a confessional, mature, uh, reformed thinker. And, you know, I've been really influenced by him and his movies, both Calvinist, which was phenomenal and Spirit and Truth, really serve as a way to take kind of that young, restless, reformed, you know, four or five point Calvinist, what's the Westminster Confession kind of people and really bring them into a more fully orbed confessionalism. So in a very uh, significant way, the aim and the goal of his movies or his films is the same as this podcast, is that we want to we want to take people who are curious about Reformed theology or starting to learn about the Reformed theology, and we want to move to a more fully throated confessional Reformed uh position and and practice and piety. And this movie really is about reformed piety and reformed worship. And what I thought was really great, and you and I have talked about this on the show, he doesn't even talk about musical worship until like, like 45 minutes into the hour and a half long movie. And, and it's in the context of basically like this is one component of worship. So check it out. Spirit and Truth. You can pick it up just about anywhere. Uh, I know Les would appreciate it if you if you picked it up and purchased it. And I think it's just a really phenomenal movie to to share with your non-reformed, non-Calvinist friends who maybe think you're a little bit weird because you don't get super excited about Christmas or that you're a little bit strange because you don't want to go to the basketball game with them or the football game with them on Sunday. Um, you know, it, it's really helpful way to kind of introduce them to this reformed perspective on what it means to to worship God and what that demands and also what the blessings of it are. These are going to be great pieces of media to have like in your library so that you can pull them out from time to time or like you said, share them with people or better yet, yeah. invite people over and watch them together and yeah. then talk about what you've just seen. So while everybody's waiting for that one to officially release, I definitely would echo what you said. Go out and look up Calvinist. That is Les's first documentary. Yeah. And I think it's a wonderful foray into understanding some of the doctrines and theology behind Calvinism and also kind of pulling away some of the harsh veneer. Some people have been influenced by that stream of theology in a way that's been overtly negative. And so yeah. the idea of a Calvinist carries a really pejorative connotation. And I think what Les does is provides a really wonderful introduction to the biblical truths behind it, stripping away some of all of that negativity that follows just with the behavior and the outworkings of some who have espoused that view, but have not done it particularly well or biblically. Yeah. So it's again, the great kind of, I think even if you are a reformed person, get it because you'll just love it. It's entertaining. It's funny. And it's actually just a delight to watch. And that yeah. sounds strange because it's a documentary about theology. And the great thing about it is just like this next one coming up, it's not necessarily narrated strictly by Les. So what you have is this like wonderful group of voices, these really biblical men and women speaking into the subject matter. And so you're getting this perspective from all these articulate Bible-based experts and theologians. And it's just like you're getting to sit in this wonderful panel and just kind of imbibe all of this amazing theology. So it's it really is a unique mix. It's entertaining. It's educational. It's fun. I think you're going to leave it feeling encouraged. So definitely Take out Calvinist, which is already out, and then Spirit and Truth, which is coming. These are again the kind of resources I think you want to like tuck away yeah. and have to like have people over and just. I know it sounds super lame, but it's, it's actually good enough that like, you can invite people over, and they'll be suspicious and be like, well, "You want us to watch a Calvinist documentary?" Be like, "Yeah, I do," and then yeah. they'll be like, "Wow, this is the best thing I've ever seen. I love God." Yeah, yeah, and you know, um, 
the the uh, <laughs> You're not phased by that at all. I'm not at all. I mean, that was my response to Calvinist. Um, the the film is broken up into like segments. So if if you've seen Calvinist, the style and the um, the sort of the way that the movie unfolds is very similar in Spirit and Truth, but it's broken up into these segments that actually would make really good individual Sunday school lessons. So you could take Calvinist, uh, if you get it on DVD or Spirit and Truth on DVD, I'm sure that it's broken into chapters. I watched it on digital download, so I don't have like the fancy menu and stuff. It is. But um, it's broken down into these chapters that you could play one for each one. And what I thought was really, really effective about Calvinist and then also Spirit and Truth, it's actually a really good presentation of the gospel itself. And in Spirit and Truth, I was actually kind of surprised at how clear... The, the gospel element of being called to worship Christ and the fact that we worship Christ in spirit and truth, in faith, and that's what God demands, that gospel element was loud and clear. So it would even be a great way to introduce your non-Christian friends to the gospel. I mean, if you can get your non-Christian friends to sit down and watch a documentary about worship, then you're already doing something right in your evangelism. But Calvinist is probably easier because a lot of times people are curious about this sort of weird thing. And even in really broadly secular circles where people don't know much about the Bible, they've probably heard something about Calvinism because it has been such a big deal in like the last 10 years. I mean, it was on the cover of, of like, um, famous magazines as like the most important significant movement in America. So it really is a great film. Pick it up spirit and truth. Uh, you can get it at, uh, I think you can probably get it through mission aware. He distributes it there. You can pick it up. I'm sure there's a website. I don't have it in front of me because we don't prepare for this stuff, but, uh, it's, it's phenomenal. You'll, you'll be blessed by it. And, uh, it's really just a great way to show how important it is to support this stuff is just to support it. Um, and we really do, I love I love Les. He's a personal friend. He's meant so much to me kind of in developing this podcast, um, being involved in the Reform Pub. And I just wish him all the best. I can't wait to see what the next film he's going to make is because I'm sure that whatever he decides to do, it's going to be phenomenal and successful. No doubt. All right. What are you affirming, Jesse? I want to stay on this media theme that we've got going on. All right. Let's do unexpectedly. it. Unexpectedly. And I am going to affirm with a book called Here I Stand, A Life of Martin Luther by Roland H. Banton. So this is something I've been wanting to read for a while. Finally got around to reading it and was super enjoyable. So if you're looking for a good biography of Luther, one that's approachable, so you don't feel like you're just getting kind of weighted down or weighed down rather with um, you know all the complexities of his life, this is a wonderful tome. And what Banton does really well is he's just a fun, great writer. So his turn of phrase is great. He'll say things that are just uh, amazingly well articulated. And then at times he also kind of has a sarcastic biting wit. So like one of my favorite parts in this book is he's really giving you some context into just the severity of the process of indulgences in the medieval church, in the Catholic church, and how this was really a fundraising mechanism that was absolutely ubiquitous. And so he, he just says almost off the cuff, you know, we, we speak sometimes in this modern day and age about different fundraisers, raisers, one of those being like bingo style. Yeah. And just like in the middle of his classification of what indulgences are, and again, speaking about how they were used, he just says indulgences were the bingo of the middle of the era. I just think that's hilarious. Yeah. It obviously did not translate well. 
yeah. in this podcast, but it's hilarious on paper. So uh, it, it's great. So let me read just like one little thing about, I think this is so good about how he encapsulates his life, but this is the kind of turn of phrase you can expect from him. And it's just an amazing treatment of Luther. So here's what he says only about seven pages in. He writes, Karl Barth said of his own unexpected emergence as a reformer could equally be said of Luther that he was like a man climbing in the darkness of a winding staircase in the steeple of an ancient cathedral. In the blackness, he reached out to steady himself, and his hand laid hold of a rope. He was startled to hear the clanging of a bell. I mean, what a a beautiful way. That's his way of kind of like speaking throughout this book. So definitely, if you're looking for something to want to understand Luther better, and I think all of his unvarnished truth about who he was as a person, but also that doesn't, I say, uplift him in such a way where he's held on a pedestal unreasonably. Here I Stand by Roland H. Banton is a really good treatment. So it's worth the read. This would be the good kind of thing to read, you know, during this holiday season, I think. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, the life of Luther is such an important uh, picture of kind of the life of every Christian is Luther really was kind of stumbling around in the darkness and almost by no intentionality or understanding of his own, he kind of stumbled into the light. And, and we know, obviously, looking back, that it was God who was dragging him forward into the light. But it really is a good, almost like a parable of all of our lives, right? That we, you know, before we knew Christ, before we were regenerated by the Holy Spirit, we were just wandering around in the darkness and, and didn't know what we were doing. And then all of a sudden, it was like we woke up one day and realized how glorious God was. And that really right. is, I mean... You know, there's a little bit of like an apocryphal understanding of Luther where like he was this radical person who intended to overthrow the church. And, you know, he he saw himself as standing against the whole world. And that's just not reality. Like Luther, even even with the 95 Theses, like there's nothing actually all that distinctively Protestant about the 95 Theses. Um, It it really is a, a process that he goes through over the next several years after that, that uh, shapes him into the reformer that he became. And so a good biography, I haven't read this one, but I've heard phenomenal things about it. A good biography will really help you understand that. And that will help you to understand your own life as a Christian, as it kind of follows that same pattern. And that's a good way of describing what happens in this book, because it's not just about entirely him. It really, the author kind of draws you into your own spiritual journey by reflecting it against what happened to Luther. Yeah. And there's just so much stuff in here that's it's both equal parts educational. You'll get a sense of Catholic theology and what Luther was really up against. You'll get a sense of the politics of the time and how the church influenced that. You'll get a sense of Luther as both the husband and a father. And then there's just parts of it that are just straight up fun. Because yeah. we've joked in this podcast about how if you want to get away with quoting Luther or you want to just make up a quote from Luther, just reference table talk, which yeah. was that place where all, all these quotations that are basically derivative taken from his students where he's literally eating with them and they're discussing theology. And this book has, I would say about two or three pages of just going through and referencing some of the more interesting and hilarious things that are attributed to table talk, at least more reasonably so. Yeah. And they're just great because he, what I like about Luther is he's a bit feisty. Yeah. You know, I kind of dig that he's a bit feisty. And so I think we could use some of that passion for God because here's a God guy that was, feisty, but it was because he was so deeply and passionately concerned and undone by God's holiness yeah. that it actually changed how he thought and how he behaved. 
And so he is really a remarkable example in that way and somebody that we should uphold and look to to say, I want to have that kind of viewpoint when it comes toward God. Yeah. So there's a lot here to just really love and adjust. So I, I can't recognize, recommend it highly enough. So go check that out. I'm affirming with it this week. Yeah. You know, could you imagine what Luther would be like in an era where Twitter was a thing? It would, it would be amazing. He, he would destroy see. it. Like he would be amazing. I know it, it, it would be like this weird combination of like Donald Trump and Carl Truman. I think it'd be like this merge <laughs> between the two where it'd be like really clever theological wit, but then no filter whatsoever. Not that Carl Truman has all that much of a filter, but right. it, like it would just be, it would be phenomenal. It'd be great. It, and that's one of the things that you get in this where you get to see a little bit, this insight into the fact that, when you and I, for instance, we speak about these guys, these gentlemen, these reformers, I think we're, we, when we do that, we're both admitting that they are still men. Yeah. And so because of that, they're going to have all these rough ed- edges. So it's not like we're condoning every piece of behavior, everything they ever said or every act that they undertook. And so some of it is kind of wonderful to read all these kind of rough edges and to see them in reflected in his life. So there's a part in the book where it's kind of speaking about the fact that he was a husband, of course, and a father and being being a husband and a father is difficult, just like being a wife and a mother. Yeah. And so what, during one of these table talk se- sessions, it's evidently reported that his wife interrupted the conversation because it was something like simple. Like she wanted to know like how long it was going to go on or wanted to pass the potatoes or something. And he's reported as saying like, man, I really wish that my wife had to say the Lord's prayer before she interjected in my conversations. <laughs> so... <laughs> So like, obviously he was a man of short patience and yeah. he was one as well that was just as sinful as you or I. And yet this shows the great lengths that God will go to, to use a person who is completely sold out to him, yeah. who has completely given himself over to him. So it's, I just love reading these kind of biographies because it doesn't pull any punches. It shows both sides. And at the end of the day, I think you can walk away saying, man, God is so good to yeah. use imperfect people. And if he can use Calvin, if he can use Luther, if he can use Zwingli, why not me? So yeah. I just think it's super encouraging. Yeah. Yeah. Why don't we use some denials? Why don't we flip this up and have you do your denial first? Okay. Let's do that. So this is going to be possibly a trigger for some people, but I'm just willing to go there. And we're Bring about to enter uh, what many people know as the, you know, the Christmas time season. And so... I want to deny something very specifically. I'm not denying against Christmas music because my love for Christmas music, I think, has been widely known. I've shared that on this podcast. I've affirmed that. So I'm going in with like surgical-like precision after one song, and I'm denying against the little drummer boy. (laughs) And the reason is because I've just never understood what's happening here. So I actually looked this up because it was so vexing me that I wanted to understand if my response was unmeasured toward this song. And it's possible it still is. But the more I looked up, the more I was like, yeah, I just like this even more. I just don't like the pum thing. The lyrics are a little bit strange to me. So apparently this thing was originally known as the Carol of the Drum. And it was only written recently. I didn't know that it was first recorded just in 1951. So that's fairly recent. But apparently what I was able to find out is that the whole story of this song or what's supposed to represent is you have a poor young boy and he's summoned by the Magi to the nativity of Christ. So I have issue with that whole thing to begin with, but we'll set that aside that he doesn't have a gift. So for whatever reason, he decides the best gift that he can bring is the fact that he has a drum and he's going to play that drum. 
And according to the song, he plays it with great approval from Jesus' mother, Mary, saying that I played with for him my best. And then the baby smiled at me. I just can't get behind this song because not only there's so many like biblical things that don't make any sense to me. I, I don't understand. Yeah. <laughs> I understand the Magi being like, we need a drummer or we need this little boy. Come, come with us. And obviously they're not showing up at the activity. So all that aside, I'm also just like physically speaking, babies this small cannot smile for reason. Yeah. In the sense of like, they're not reacting to their external environment and seeing something that pleases them and smiling. Uh, if they're smiling, it's likely because like they're just bloated and they have gas. So maybe that's part of the funniness of the song is that he misinterpreted the smile. But then this is how this is how I'm taking this is how deep I'm going with this because it vexes me so much. Then I get into this weird like docetism range though with this where I'm like, wait a second. So we're saying that if he could smile because he's seeing the drum and hearing the drum and the drum pleases Jesus as this small infant child. And then he's able to respond in an ornament or let's say like beyond human way, then now he's not a human child. So I, I want to deny this all over the place. So <laughs> you tell me, has, have I gone too far I, in I, my analysis? I don't think you have, but here's what has always <laughs> struck me about this song. You know, I've never been around a woman who just gave birth but I can imagine okay. that the last thing that they want is some <laughs> kid smashing on a drum <laughs> while their newborn baby tries to sleep. Right. So, the, you know, what other Christmas song triggers me a little bit is the song. Do you hear what I hear? You know what song I'm uh, talking about? Yes. And particularly the line uh, said, the shepherd boy to the mighty king. Do you know what I know? In your palace wall, mighty king, do you know what I know? A child, a child shivers in the cold. Let us bring him silver and gold. First of all, why is the shepherd boy proposing that they bring silver and gold? The shepherd boy doesn't have any gold. And second of all, that king is Herod. So that that shepherd boy, he's dead now. Like the, the song doesn't make any sense. So it's like the people who write these songs are like, and maybe this is probably literally true, like, they know enough about the Christmas story to have like these themes, like, like Mary yes, exactly. and like the King, like these things, silver and gold, like they have these themes, but you can tell by the fact that these songs make no sense whatsoever, that they really don't understand even just the basics of the biblical story. You're right about that. Like there's some, there's stuff in here that's noble, this idea of wanting to bring riches to express you know, honor to a king, or in this case with the little drummer boy, knowing that you have nothing to give and you're trying to give you the best of what you have yourself, right. your own talents and abilities. Like, okay, we're totally down with that. Yeah. I just think everything else is nonsensical. And I think there might be some like latent heresy embedded in yeah. this song. <laughs> yeah. You know, if I was the little drummer boy, I would have been like, you know what I'm going to give to Jesus? I'm going to give him some peace and quiet. Because he was just born, and I'm sure his mother doesn't want me pound, pounding on this drum in in this little manger cave thing. Oh, uh, that's so fun. I mean, if people are going to get like all up in arms about the no crying he makes lyric, then this he smiled at me thing to yeah. me is like equally weird. It's just yeah. equally weird. It definitely is. You're you're not wrong. Yeah, it's just it's just strange. All right, so get me out of this funk that I'm in with this song. What are you denying? So I'm going to trigger people, I think, on a different vector. So I'm not going to get into all of the details, 
But what I'm denying, and I'm sure that by the time people are listening to this, they will know what situation I'm referring to. I'm denying internet slander. So there is a situation going on, and, and it's not a it's not an utterly unique situation where one um one I don't want to call him popular, but one uh active YouTube but podcast Christian dude out there is like actively slandering and aggressively attacking another like Christian figure on in in the world. And, you know, I never understood this. I've been uh, the object of a fair amount of Internet uh, aggression and slander. And, you know, for the most part, you can kind of just brush it off because you're like, these are just random people. But it does get to you and it does hurt a little bit. And sure, you know, like, why are we like this? Like, why? Why are we like this? I don't understand. Like, sometimes it's jealousy. Sometimes it's pride. But sometimes I just don't understand why why people get the way they do online. And I'm just denying the fact that we sometimes we forget when we're interacting online or whether it's interacting in a Facebook group or on Twitter or whether it's kind of the weird interaction that sometimes happens between podcasters as they kind of like respond to each other on their show, their various shows. Like sometimes I think we forget that we're dealing with real people who have real emotions and real lives and real feelings. So, you know, I, I just, I will deny that all day and twice on the Lord's day. It just be Christians out there, people like stop slandering people, stop, stop spreading lies and gossip and stop saying unholy, ungodly things about other people. Just because you're on the internet doesn't mean that the ninth commandment doesn't apply anymore. Right. You're right. The internet is really, some of the ways that I view it is it's this great experiment in pulling down appropriate barriers of accountability to see the fullest extent of our sinfulness with human interaction. Yeah. And so you see this, especially, of course, among those who exhibit le- less restraint, many non-believers. But then even in the realm of be- believers, there is so much about the internet that evokes our sinful behaviors. Yeah. And so instead of looking at what are oftentimes we feel like are anonymous or disconnected people, almost we make them ideals, make them caricatures. We do not have what Christ has when he sees the crowds that are harassed and helpless. He has compassion. Yeah. And there is just a lack of compassion online. Our, our normative or default response is not to bring graciousness often to a conversation, but straight like to just lambaste, to become attacking. And especially where we feel like we ought to have right to do that is the space in which the Christian differentiates themselves from every other person by saying, I have no right. I'm constrained by love of Christ right. to honor and to have reasonable dialogue. I think that's the kind of thing that people see in it and says, well, that's miraculous. Like yeah. people that can actually interact online in a reasonable way among what seems like reasonable uh, points of differentiation. That is something that is unique. So the internet is just like this great, I think the whole trope is here's a place where the anonymity and the protection allows you to really embrace your sinfulness. And it's so easy to do. Yeah. Yeah. You know, and, and there's this weird phenomena that happens too. I like that you kind of talk about the internet, like it's still an experiment because we're still in the grand scheme of things. We're still very, it's very new. It's very early in the yes. development of, of what right. this is going to be. And, 
you know, in, in previous generations, like in order to interact with someone, you had to know physically where to find them. You had to be able to like track down their phone number or find them in a phone book. If you wanted, you know, if you think back to like the first five centuries of the church, like bishops had to know which congregation, other bishops they were interacting with, like where to send a letter to. And what I've noticed is that online people don't talk about like which church they go to. They don't talk about where their membership is. So if you were in a situation where you needed to seek the remediation of the local church through the the Matthew 18 process, a lot of times there's not even a vector for you to do that. You're not even able to pursue church discipline or church, uh, church mediation the way that the Bible calls us to, because the person you're talking to online they have to voluntarily tell you who their pastor is and how to get a hold right. of them for you to do that. And a lot of times that's not forthcoming. So I just think it's important as we interact online to be honest and have integrity with each other. Like sometimes, you know, when I get in a conflict online, sometimes I'll say like, this is the church I go to. Here's the website for the church. The contact information for my pastor is accessible. If you feel like you need to get in touch with him, if you feel like I've sinned against you and I'm not listening to you, then here's the website for my church. Like I'm transparent about that. But what I've noticed is a lot of times some of these internet uh, feuds that happen or these internet um, conflicts that happen, that level of honesty and integrity about where a person, where the accountability to the local church that person is, that's not there. And and it's frustrating at times because that leaves someone like me or, or not that you get in conflicts on the internet all that often, but someone like me or you who wants to follow the biblical precedent, sometimes we have to like be public about what's going on because we don't have the option of going to the local church that this person is a part of. So it has to be kind of presented to the whole church at large for kind of public review because that person has not given us the information we need to pursue that initial step of going to that person's pastor. And it's hard because sometimes right. that seems like you're now dragging something out into the open that uh, that should have been kept private. But in reality, you're doing what you need to do because that person has not allowed you to keep it in private because they have not voluntarily told you who they're accountable to in terms of pastoral oversight. So it, it's just a tough situation out there. And like I said, by the time this airs, all of all of what I'm talking about will probably be familiar to our audience. I'm sorry to be vague about it, but it, it's frustrating to see when it happens. It really is a a difficult thing that is, I think, kind of a new, unique uh, situation that Christianity, Western Christianity, I think Christians in China don't really care about what's going on on the Internet. They're just focusing on not getting arrested and and murdered right. for their faith. So it's kind of like a first world problems kind of a thing. But it's a new challenge that we haven't had to face that much in the history of the churches. What do you do with the apparent anonymity and the ability to hide where it is that you worship and who it is that you're accountable to. How do we handle that? It's not just this sense of accountability, but in my estimation, here's something that's really strange about the internet that we've, we've just adopted because it changed and moved on us so quickly. And we haven't often had time to really metabolize and process what we're doing. But think of it this way in the past, if you were a person that had any kind of public influence, that is your ideas, your thoughts, either written or spoken, were being broadcast to people that you didn't know, 
right. usually that came with some sense of responsibility or training. So the only thing I can think of as an example on the top of my head is like, let's take like the, the British royalty. Cause my wife is like knee deep in the crown, whatever the new season of that show is. <laughs> And so you have responsible here, this monarchy to interact, to speak, and they're trained all their lives, at least in, to in some way to exhibit certain characteristics, especially in the public eye, how right. they look, how they behave, how they act. What we have in the internet is, whereas now there were in the past personal brands that could be attributed only to, let's say, those of some sense of notoriety because they had gained that notoriety, right, right or wrong. Now the notoriety has been democratized and yeah. that everybody can have a brand. Every Facebook page is essentially a person's own brand. Right. And so that means that they can come into the public sphere and say all kinds of things without respect to even just trying to understand how someone might really need to behave in the public sphere. And as Christians, we're just as susceptible to this because as human beings, our pride is automatically connected to a sense of personal branding. Yeah. And so it's very easy to go on the attack on somebody else's brand and to basically disassociate or divorce the person and the loving kindness from this idea that we're just all brands interacting online and some brands are better than other brands. And so therefore I can come in and destroy one because at, when I do that, it makes my brand more popular or it makes me look better. Yeah. And so I think there's just so much of our own sinful nature that gravitates toward this new identity. And we're still, as I am, finding new ways to think about what's actually happening. So in my estimation, it is still really a grand experiment yeah. because it's constantly changing and evolving. And in some ways we're given, I mean, we, we've talked about this before too, like this idea that you can go into Facebook and in some ways you're taking on or at least uh, I would say like inadvertently getting this kind of omniscient focus because now you're able to see things from all over the world. Because it's not just Facebook, but online generally. And so you can get worried and, and concentrate and focus on things that are far beyond your community when oftentimes our own community needs help. And that's the place we would have been focused before, but we have access to information that allows us to get distracted with so many different things. So there's, there's this immense need for balance. There's this immense yeah. need for love. And the Christian, the one that's regenerated, the transformed heart, is really the only one that can come in and bring restored to power by the grace of God into the sphere of the internet. The interwebs need that. Yeah. And so I, I love when I see people like Nate Pickowitz, like you, others interacting in Twitter and Facebook and really making that the priority. I think that in many ways makes God look glorious. Yeah. And so I'd love to see that happening. Yeah, that's the hardest part though, is like it's so hard to interact on Twitter or Facebook, Twitter more than Facebook, but Facebook too, like it's really hard to interact in a way that is God honoring. Like that's almost like the platforms are designed for, for quick impressions and hot takes. I mean, they are designed for that, right? right? It's not like they're like yeah. that. They are designed for that. So to be able to use those in a way that are, that's thoughtful and presents your, your interlocutor or your opponent's view faithfully and honestly, like it's really hard to do that. And it's so easy to think that you can just throw something out there into the internet and then act like it never happened but it really is, it really can be damaging and very harmful to a person who's kind of the target of that. So yeah, it's I'll, I'll deny internet slander and gossip and aggression all day long. So speaking of hot takes and the opposite thereof. That was like that's an amazing transition. <laughs> 
I, I'm, I'm like waiting with bated breath on how like the next part of that sentence on how you're going to connect this to Micah four. Well, we're back into the Micah series, Micah cast, if you will. And we're finishing up chapter four and we're heading into just, just wading in to chapter five. Yes. And I figured this is like, what is better than us talking about this? Because I'm sure it's, it's like the opposite of the hot take. We're going to go to the scriptures we have reasonable people listening to this podcast. We're going to weigh out the scriptures together and see what the Lord has for us in this chapter. And it seems like we're on a string right now of where we get into some like really good, at least I think as far as you and I are concerned, affirmations and denials. And then we just get like rocking on those. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, they've been long, but I, 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 nobody's been complaining. <laughs> nobody's. It's not like reformed pilgrims are like, consider this. Consider shorter affirmations and denials. <laughs> uh, well, let's get into Micah, end of chapter four. Do you have those beautiful verses in front of you to read for us? I do. So we're going to start in verse eight. It says, And you, O tower of the flock, hill of the daughter of Zion, to you shall it come. The former dominion shall come, kingship for the daughter of Jerusalem. Now, why do you cry aloud? Is there no king in you? Has your counselor perished? That pain sees you like a woman in labor. Writhe and groan, O daughter of Zion, like a woman in labor. For now you shall go out from the city and dwell in the open country. You shall go to Babylon. There you shall be rescued. There the Lord will redeem you from the hand of your enemies. Now many nations are assembled against you, saying, Let her be defiled and let her eyes gaze upon Zion. But they do not know the thoughts of the Lord. They do not understand his plan that he has gathered them as sheaves to the threshing floor. Arise and thresh, O daughter of Zion, for I will make your horn iron, and I will make your hooves bronze. I will, you shall beat in pieces many peoples, and shall devote their gain to the Lord, their wealth to the Lord of the whole earth. Chapter 5, verse 1. Now muster your troops, O daughter of troops. Siege is laid against us. With a rod they strike the judge of Israel on the cheek. Boom. And so there's like so much yeah. amazing tension in these verses. And I love it because there's almost an inflection point. We have Micah's prophecy is moving in this direction where it's explaining that Israel's present distress, this now of verses 9 and 11, is going to bring some kind of glorious salvation, the liberation yeah. from the later Babylonian exile and then release from Sennacherib's, Sennacherib's siege. So we have the miserable calamities of the people or even this complete ruin that's being talked about here, this is not going to prevent God from restoring his church with strength, splendor, and power. So before we started podcasting this episode, or just recording it, if that's a, I don't know if podcasting is a verb, <laughs> I'd said that I was, uh, I was pretty fired up about this passage, and I really am. So I don't want to get like too fired up too soon. I want it to be like a slow burn. So let's start off like with in the beginning of this pericope, like with this whole like tower of the flock thing. How do you see that? What, yeah. what is the Tower of the Flock that he's talking about here? I mean, I have to admit, you know, reading through the commentaries and, and reading this passage several times, I kind of walked away scratching my head, if I'm being really honest. This was this was a, a, a more difficult than the rest of the stuff we've gone through passage. I had a tough time even knowing where to start. But, you know, the, the commentators that I've read, some of them saw this tower of the flock, hill of the daughter of Zion, saw it in a very positive light. And some of them actually right. saw it in almost a negative light. Um, so I honestly, I'm not sure. I mean, I, I think, you know, the, the, the problem here that we have is there's this mixture of 
positive and negative language, right? The the idea of right. the tower of the flock, the the hill of the daughter of Zion, that's a positive concept, right? It's this 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 image of prominence and this image of sort of visibility and of um prosperity, right? The tower of the flock has to do with this idea that that there's the flock of Israel and then there's the tower in the midst of it. It's this sort of mixed metaphor, but it's this idea of this central feature that everybody can see or the hill of the daughter of Zion, right? We talked yes. about how hills are really important, but then there's like this rhetorical question um, of like, is there no king in you? There's this, you shall, uh, to you shall it come, the former dominion shall come, kingship for the daughters of Jerusalem. So it's it's looking forward to a, a, a stage where the dominion and the glory of the Davidic kingdom that, that Israel once had will come again, but it's not here yet. So there's this, this mixture of positive and negative that I think makes the passage really difficult to interpret. I agree. I think that we should be unsettled when we read or hear this because it, what he's talking about here is beauty and pain. There's a loss and there's a gain. Right. There's this like a woman in labor. And so that's what's really got me fired up as I've thought about this this week, because on the one hand, we have this promise of the glories of the spiritual Jerusalem, the gospel church, which is that tower of the flock, that one fold in which all the sheep of Christ are protected under one shepherd. And there's both this literal structure to it in terms of the Babylonian exile and then this spiritual understanding as we read it now. At the same time, there's this pain of judgment, which you just spoke about, and it's manifested in a literal exile of getting out, of being pushed out of the place of your own home, the loss of king and land. For the remnant must precede the birth of the messianic age that will yeah. follow. And that's the thing that was really impacting me as I read this, because to Zion and Jerusalem, that is like that tower of the flock, to the nation of the Jews, came the first dominion. That's where the kingdom of Christ was first set up. The gospel of the kingdom was first preached. There Christ was first called the king of the Jews. And so this tension, I think, is between the facts that God is saying there is something beautiful that's going to come out of this, but it will be born from pain. And that's illustrated by this prediction of the calamities of the literal Jerusalem to which some favor and relief will be granted. And it's a type and a figure of what God could do and will do for the church in the last days. And so that's the thing that I've really been mulling over because what I find brilliant about God's work is that in the bringing of Jesus Christ into this world, the son that is given, not the son that's born, but the son that is given and pre-exists, We have one who is touching all of humanity, but is not merely using pain and and, uh, disaster as a means to an end, but is so categorically redefining it by taking it upon himself, though he does not deserve it because it is a consequence of sin, which he is sinless. But in redefining it, he takes, takes basically all of these, let's just say it this way, bad things that happen. And whereas they'd be in a category onto their own where they are useless, he not only makes them useful, but he redefines them as glory making. Yeah. And that's what I get blown away by in this passage. Yeah. You know, this really is, um, I I can't find the quote off the top of my head, but in Calvin's commentary, he basically makes the point that like sometimes God allows us to be laid low in order for him to then build us up. And to, to elevate us in the future. And so I think, you know, in this passage, it's one of those passages that's hard to understand and hard to read because it's so contrary to kind of our 
everyday understanding, right? Even even post regeneration, we still have this sort of like um, works reward principle that we we instinctively operate by. Like a person who's going to do really well, like if God wants to bless that person, then they should be expecting to see prosperity and everything at work should go great and their marriage should be awesome and their kids should be well behaved and right. you know they should drive a nice car and they should never get any speeding tickets and, and in reality like god sometimes lays us out flat to be able to show us the the depths of our own sin to be able to show us the glory of his salvation in a way that i don't think we understand and i think you know the the jews going into exile the hebrews going into exile for them to look at that and then to say like, yet shall there be a kingdom for us in the future, right? That the prophet here is kind of rhetorically saying like, you cry aloud, is there no king in you? Has your counselor perished? And then he says, writhe and groan. But the point of this is not to say like, yeah, life is going to suck just for the sake of life sucking. But in verse 10, the point of it is there you shall be rescued. There the Lord will redeem you from the hand of your enemies. So it's not that God rescues and redeems us, right? Jesus says he, the physician doesn't come for the healthy, but he comes for the sick, right? So it's not as though God is going to rescue us from great circumstances, Um, he's going to sometimes allow us to fall into terrible, tragic situations in order to show us how glorious his rescue actually is. And the example there with respect to a physician is a really good one because, because of where in the era in which we live, I sometimes think that we do not think enough that medicine and especially surgery is absolutely insane Yeah. because what somebody is literally saying to you is like, I know you have a problem in your body. So here's what we're going to do. I'm actually going to inflict a wound upon you under your volition. Yeah. And I'm going to go in, I'm going to mess some things up, going to do some cutting, take some things out, put some things in. And then I'm going to try to bind up the wound and trust me, you're going to be better off when I'm done than before we've just started here. Yeah. And so it's exactly the kind of thing that God's you're talking about here is that's, that's what amazes me is God isn't just saying, because I think sometimes as Christians, we fall into this kind of trope where we say things like, well, God can use that thing. God can redeem the pain. God can take a hard situation and turn it around. And what we're actually seeing here is something far deeper. It's not that God takes something that's unfortunate and then uses it to make something fortunate. God makes the thing that is unfortunate yeah. and he makes yes. it fortunate. Yes, exactly. And, and that's the thing that I think is totally radical and unique to the Christian worldview because the prophecy that's being spoken of here moves from this present distress to the Messiah's coming in victory. And that victory in the coming must happen through pain and disappointment. So the promises of God are fulfilled in and through suffering. The nation should not indulge itself, as Mike is saying here, in some kind of grief or pity party, because for through the things that are bad, those things are going to end up ending well. Israel's pangs are great, but they are like those of a woman in exertion. The labors are to bring forth a child. So in other words, what's amazing about this example here is Jerusalem's pains are not dying agonies. It's not like just somebody who's on the side of the road who has no hope. But the pain is going to bring forth a child. And though you and I, one, don't have children and two, can never bear children. I think we're familiar, at least, acquainted from a distance, seeing children in the wild, if you will, (laughs) that there is a joy in parents, especially mothers. There's a unique joy 
in receiving a child from God physically. And that joy is so strong that many women are willing to go back for more, (laughs) even though childbirth is insanely painful, even if, and even if you're able to do it in the modern context of all that medicine can afford in terms of pain management. And and so I'm just blown away by the way that God doesn't just use pain. He radically redefines it. And he takes something, the pain and the discomfort is not part of God's original kingdom as we understand it in the garden, of course. And so Jesus comes to assume this pain because it is unique to our condition as sinners, even though he does not deserve to bear it. And then in the bearing of it, it's not just like he says, he reverses it and somehow makes it palatable. He makes it good. And so therefore, even as we experience intense pain, that we can come before the Lord knowing that one, Jesus has borne it, and two, that it is always for our good and for his glory. So I'm just like, I don't know, can you hear that I'm like fired up about about this passage? You know, it's been a little while since we've gone to the catechisms because just the nature nature of the, the topics we've been talking about. But, you know, this really reminds me, good catechetical theology is so important because it, it, it shapes the way that we think and understand who God is in a way that is so reasonable and logical. So question seven of the Shorter Catechism, Westminster Shorter Catechisms, what are the decrees of God? The decrees of God are his eternal purpose, according to the counsel of his will, whereby for his own glory he hath foreordained whatsoever comes to pass. Question eight, how doth God execute his decrees? Answer, God executes his decrees in the works and creation of creation and providence. And then jump down to question 11. What are God's works of providence? God's works of providence are his most holy, wise, and powerful preserving and governing all his creatures and all his actions. So if we reverse engineer that a little bit, what that means is that that terrible event, whatever it might be, right? We don't have to come up with specifics, but that that event that feels really terrible, that you you walk out of that and you're like, man, I really wish that didn't happen. That happened right. because God governed all his creatures and their actions in order to bring about the execution of his decrees in this act of providence or in this work of providence in order that he might fulfill his eternal purpose according to the counsel of his will for his own glory, which he foreordained to come to pass, right? If you reverse engineer that, that is a recipe for assurance and comfort and contentment in all circumstances, yes. right? When Paul yes. says, I have learned to be content in all circumstances, he's not talking about the fact that he didn't get what he wants for Christmas, right? He's not talking about the fact that his car broke down. He's talking about the fact that his kinsmen have abandoned him. Everywhere he goes, people try to murder him. Even within the church, people are slandering and abusing and insulting and trying to undercut him that he's probably lost his wife. There's a good reason for us to believe that Paul was married. He's probably lost his family. He's lost his reputation. He's lost whatever wealth and whatever uh, standing he had in Jewish society that he says he worked hard to achieve. That is where he's content. And I think when we read Micah here, what we have to understand is that God is not saying, yeah, all this stuff is really bad And I'm sorry that it has to happen this way, but don't worry. It's going to be okay. I'm going to work some good out of it. So even though this sucks, it's not going to suck. 
What God is saying is precisely the opposite of that, is that these invaders who are going to come and are going to murder a lot of you and are going to rape your wives and they're going to murder your children. And then this is this is hard to get your head around. That is good because God is governing it for the glory of his name and for the benefit of his people. So sometimes I think Arminians or, or just sort of general evangelicals kind of throw at Calvinists. Well, you know, God, God allows for a little child to be raped. You're saying that God did that? Yeah. Yeah, we are saying that God did that. Now, there's complex theology around uh, exactly how God's involvement in that is. But what we know from the scriptures, from Romans chapter 8, that all things work together for the good of those who love God and are called according to his purpose. And it's not just that God takes those circumstances and realigns them for good, but God actively works all things for the good of his people, according to his will, for his own glory and for their own good. And I I just think sometimes as Calvinists, we kind of shy away from that because we don't want to do the hard work of explaining or, or we don't want to, we don't want to look like the monster who says that that tragedy that happened is actually done according to God's will for his own glory, for his own purpose. And that even though we don't understand how or why it's still good because God is good and God, whatever God yes. does is good. And so we, we have to, rather than shy away from that, of try to explain it away, we actually have to press into that because that is what the scriptures teach. And I don't want anybody to mishear us and think that what we're saying here is that these things, painful things, loss of loved ones, conflicts in your life are easy. We're not saying that. We're not saying that because they occur, that suddenly because we're saying God has ordained them for our good and for his glory, that that somehow makes them easy to withstand or to bear under. It makes it difficult. But here's the reason why it must be this way. If we claim, as the Bible tells us, that God is sovereignly in control, that he is able to redeem all things, then he must be able to go up against the thing which seems like it is the most worst in all the world that is beyond help that cannot be in any way possibly good and turn that thing around and redefine it so categorically that it gives him glory. And so that's why even Jesus Christ himself, that salvation comes through suffering, the rescue came through suffering, that we have a suffering savior who leans in close to all of the death and decay that we experience in our lives and then destroys that very thing. Right. It, that must be the path. And so it's primarily because the minimum wages of sin is death, and sin always brings death, decay, and chaos. And so we need one who can take those things and not merely just, again, make them suitable toward a particular end, but make them good in and of themselves to display that, one, he is good, and two, that he is that powerful to do that. He is the only one that can do that. And so here we have this literal Jerusalem, who in Micah's time is saying should comfort herself with this, that whatever straits she's going to be reduced to, and the numbers are going to be reduced of the people themselves, that she will continue until the coming of the Messiah for there, his kingdom must be set up and she will not be destroyed while that blessing, the messianic promise is within her. And that should be great comfort to us as well. And so I love that you brought up the catechism because where I, my mind was going with this is in this beautiful doctrine of Reformed theology and the perseverance of the saints. And so I want to quote just briefly from that doctrine 
in the Westminster Confession, which reads following, They whom God hath accepted in his beloved, effectually called and sanctified by his spirit, can neither totally nor finally fall away from the state of grace, but shall certainly persevere therein to the end and be eternally saved. Or in other words, we believe that those who once become true Christians cannot totally fall away and be lost, and that while we all may fall into sin temporarily, we will eventually return and be saved. So those who have fled to Jesus, you know, and then we're talking about those, not just you and I now, but those even in Micah's time, those who have fled to Jesus, to that promise of the Messiah for refuge, have a firm foundation on which to build. Though there's going to be floods of error that are going to deluge our land, though Satan's going to rise up all the powers of the earth and all the iniquities of our own hearts against us, we will not fail, yeah. but we're going to pers- persevere to the end, and we're going to inherit those ma- mansions that have been prepared for us in the end from the foundation of the world. Why? Because God has secured it, and he yeah. secured it often through immeasurable pain. So it's amazing for me to think about in reflecting on this passage that the saints in heaven, saints in, saints in heaven, the saints in heaven <laughs> are happier but they're no more secure than are the true believers here yeah. in this world. Yeah. And that's because of what God has secured. And part of that securing, I think even for our benefit to see, has come through pain. Yeah. Yeah. And, and you know, just so uh, if anyone happens to be listening to this who thinks that we're just reading this into the text, we're really not. Like, it's right there on the surface of it here. So verse 11 says, Now many nations are assembled against you, he's speaking to the people of, of Israel, saying, Let her be defiled and let our eyes gaze upon Zion. So the image here is basically like uh, the, the and this is a little graphic, but it, this is the scripture, right? The image is a woman who has been captured in war, who's been stripped naked, has probably been violated, and the soldiers are looking upon her ravished body, and they're they're drawing delight in the fact of what they've done to this woman. And then right. verse 12 says, so so read uh, the the most humiliating, miserable, terrible thing that could happen to a person. And then verse 12 says, but they do not know the thoughts of the Lord. They do not understand his plan that he has gathered them as sheaves to the threshing floor. So basically what this is saying is that all of that stuff, all all of the terrible things that were about to happen to Israel, that we're going to reduce her to the, the metaphor of a abused, battered, raped woman who her right. victimizers were going to gloat over they are reduced to sheaves at the threshing floor. And then verse 13, and here's the gospel in this. Arise and thresh, O daughters of Zion. For I will make your horn iron, I will make your hues bronze, and you shall beat in pieces many people and shall devote their gain to the Lord, their wealth to the Lord of the whole earth. So all of that, all of that trauma, all of that victimization, all of that terrible things that come to Israel, and, and I think we can apply this to the church that come to God's people, all of that will be for our gain. And whatever prosperity it seems like these wicked, evil people have is actually going to be devoted to the Lord in some sense in the future. And here's, here's that quote out of Calvin that I was uh, looking for. He says, God did not indeed restore at once his church, but afflicted her for a time so that she differed nothing from a dead man. 
As then a dead body lies on the ground without feeling, so also did the church of God lie prostrate. This is the reason why the prophet now says, Arise, daughter of Zion, as though God by his voice roused the dead. For the prophet remind us that there is no reason for the faithful wholly to despair when they find themselves cast down, for their restoration is in the hand and power of God, as it is the peculiar office of God to raise the dead. And this same truth right. ought to be applied for our use. So when, when we look, you know, one of the things that is difficult about reading the prophets is it's hard sometimes to understand how the prophets can be applied for our use. But in this right here, what we see is we see God's people being beat down, being cast aside, being cast down to death, and then God commanding them to live and blessing them. And we're going to we're going to yes. go into verse into chapter five next week. The gospel is so much bigger than just protect me from my enemies. It's so much bigger than just protect me from being abused and slandered and assaulted and killed. It's so much bigger than that. And that's where we go here. Verse, verse five, one. Now muster your troops, O daughters of troops. Siege is laid against us with a rod. They strike the judge of Israel on the cheek. So this is, this is where we get into next week, right? Who is the judge of Israel that gets struck on the cheek? It's Jesus, right, right? Right. That's Jesus. Like that's our new tagline. Like honor everyone. That's <laughs> Jesus, right? So, so even in Amen. the midst of this this prophecy of despair and of tragedy and violence that's going to come upon the people, it points to here in verse five one that ultimately the people who are attacking and assaulting Israel they are striking the judge of Israel on the cheek. So we can go into the next, the next section here next week. The judge of Israel will not bear to be struck on the cheek forever. He will have his vengeance. He will have his day. And when his day comes, he will rise the daughters of, of Zion, right? And that's you and me, right? We're the daughters of Zion. It feels weird to call us daughters, but we're the children of Israel. We're the daughters of Zion. We're the sons of Jacob, right? We have an inheritance, a glorious inheritance that the son has obtained for us. But just as the son had to suffer and die to obtain that inheritance, we also will suffer and die with and for our savior in order to obtain that glorious inheritance. Right. And that's what's so amazing, unique. And that brings us back to the very tension of this whole pericope in that Jesus as as the God-man, as the one who's truly God and truly man, the one who is victorious and conquering, the Messiah himself, notice that that victory comes only after the striking, that there yeah. is a striking still. Uh, and so it's amazing that this is the way in which we get to kind of follow in his footsteps that we know in our own lives that will be pain. And as we talked about before, I think this also speaks to the fact that I believe God will allow us in his great mercy to fall into a million lesser sins to protect us from greater ones. Yeah. And he does that by way of small amounts of pain and striking, not just by way of discipline, but so that we might through that pain be redeemed. He wants to redeem us every time we sin. Every time we come before him in repentance is a little bit like this act of resurrection. Yeah. And so with absent that, we do not have the kind of triumph that he wants for us in our own lives. And so this is why, because of all the things we've just said in this conversation, that James can say so confidently, consider it pure joy, 
whenever you face trials of many kinds. Yeah. And so I, I think we have here, again, this wonderful continuity of the scriptures that draw us back to looking, setting our faces by faith to perceive and see the one who is our elder brother who's gone the way before us through this kind of immense pain and in so has delivered us into the presence of God. Yeah. Yeah, that's a good word to end on. I mean, you know, the the this series in the the prophets in Micah has just been so spiritually enriching. Like like I feel like I've had a good meal after I I spend time talking through what Micah has to say to us. Like you know, I've commented before that sometimes it feels like you get to the, the the prophets, especially the minor prophets, like the major prophets. It's a lot easier to see the prophecies of Christ in there. Like it's all over Isaiah. You get to Jeremiah and there's all this talk of the new covenant and you get to Ezekiel and, you know, you're, you're seeing echoes of revelation, but then you get to the minor prophets and you're kind of like, what is the deal with these guys? Like what, what's even happening here? And just going through Micah and really spending the time to think about it and digest it and read what the saints of the past have said about it has been so spiritually beneficial for me. And I hope it's been spiritually beneficial for the people listening to the show too, because you know, I, I've never really considered myself to be like a, a real great exegete. Like I don't, I don't really, I don't really consider myself to be anything super special. I mean, I'm competent, but I'm not anything super special, but that's the glory of the scripture. Like you don't have to be like, it, it just right. takes a little bit of time and energy and thinking through this stuff and reading it in lot, like reading the Bible with it, with the Bible in one hand and the Bible in the other hand and like cross-referencing what's going on. Like, it's really not that far out there. It's not that hard to see when you really are paying attention um, and you're praying as you do it. So I would encourage people, you know, pick up pick up the scriptures, read the scriptures and just spend the time really soaking in what the word says and allow what the word says to change and inform your life and transform you into the image of Christ. To connect maybe the starting point and the ending point of this podcast, I would argue that at the end of time, when we stand before the Lord, our lack of biblical literacy is going to be proved against us, not because we didn't have enough time, but because all our time was soaked up in things like the internet, which take a lot of time just away from us being able to do exactly what you said, because we have the greatest teacher that resides in us, that all of the incentives, so to speak, are compatible. If we ask the Holy Spirit to illuminate the word, he is faithful to do that. Yeah. And so we just need to do more of that. I need to do more of that. And I hope that these conversations that you and I are having as we're exploring this idea together, that many people will also be inspired by God through his Holy Spirit to go into their own lives, into their own prayer closets, into their own families, into their own worship time, and grab the Bibles and make that predominant, and make that the focus of what they're doing in their days. Yeah. Well, Jesse, I'm excited to get to next week, uh, especially since we're coming into the middle of winter, no special reason season. Uh, but we're going to come up on <laughs> probably like one of the most significant, most well-known messianic prophecies in all of the old Testament next week. Oh yeah. And it just happens to be December. We didn't plan this out, but God did. So we're going to talk about it next Let's week. Let's get messianic. I'm pretty stoked. So join us next week. Uh, bring your Bible with you. Check it out. We're super stoked to keep going through Micah. Let's do it. All right. Well, Jesse, until then, <laughs> what's what's so funny? 
we, we just did you feel it again if yeah. you've been a regular listener there was that tension it was either going to resolve or we we're about to just blow this up and go right off the rails yeah let's stay on the rails this week so until next ah, time fine. we just did it again there it was again yep it is it's like honor the, everyone love the brotherhood ah.